1: This special year-end edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable was recorded shortly before the Colorado Supreme Court's decision on Donald Trump's eligibility to run for president.
2: Hello, good friends. Welcome to this special holiday edition of the Bill Press Pod and a special Reporters Roundtable. Well, tis three days before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature is stirring, except members of the fourth estate who never really stop stirring because they're always looking out for the next big breaking news story. But today, as 2023 winds down, we've asked three top editors of Washington's political press corps to take time out to look back with us at this year's big stories. What were the most important stories they had to cover this past year? Which ones had the most impact? Which ones will still be remembered a year from now? Or which ones, which seemed so important at the time, will soon be forgotten? Joining us today with their editorial hats on Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor, NBC News. Hi, Ginger.
3: Hi, happy holidays. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Jason.
1: Hello and good morning.
2: <laughs> yes, and Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of the National <laughs> Journal. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's each of as each of you in turn, let's start with just one big story that certainly summed up maybe 2023 for you, captured a lot of your time, uh, and we'll ask each of you to comment on whoever the – Whatever the other one said, and then add one, maybe one of your own. Ginger, why don't you start us off? Big story 2023.
3: The biggest story of my year was Donald Trump in criminal court. I mean, it was just seemingly nonstop. And when I look back at last December, when I look back at January, we knew this was a thing that could happen. I remember telling one of uh, the reporters on my team who covers the Justice Department. Uh, in his annual review in the beginning of the year. Congratulations, you're a campaign reporter now. You're going to have to cover uh, the leading Republican presidential candidate. And it really has played out. It just was so much of the year, so much of the oxygen and the energy um, and everything that was happening was focused on like five courtrooms, some of them in DC, some of them across America. And it to me was just, it really was, unprecedented not anything we had ever seen before and really historic and consequential uh playing out in real time as a former president was um for different times uh in different courthouses
2: and uh, and testifying on the stand right Right. yeah
3: in a civil case right that was brought by by Mm -hmm. a government agency so sort of sort of Criminal adjacent, but not actually criminal, right? But it just was unprecedented. And of course, we're only seeing part of the story at this point, but him getting on the stand and testifying is, I like to say now that the New York fraud case that we've watched over the last six weeks that we will get uh some type of final decision or at least before it gets appealed in january is like the appetizer to the trump legal <laughs> saga that we're all about to watch unfold it is it is the cold appetizers and even the hot appetizer right <laughs> like this is just the beginning and the fact that we heard him even as late as you know a couple weeks ago in the last week um talking about well i'm not going to testify because I, a gag order is keeping me from saying what i need to say which is you know what he only wants to say is like ad hominem attacks against people. A preview, just a small preview of what we're going to see play out, I think, uh, in the coming months. But uh, what, really dominated the year.
2: What do you What do you think, Jeff? It was hard to top Donald Trump's legal troubles in twenty twenty three. Your take?
4: It was, and Ginger. One one thing that Ginger said reminded me. I had to put out a directive in the newsroom. This was probably like end of Trump era, beginning of the Biden administration. I had to put out a directive for the reporters to ask them to try to not use the word unprecedented so much, (laughs) but there aren't a whole lot of good synonyms for it. And it is so often appropriate in, in this political era that we're in. Uh, it, It is a fact that that we are going through something unprecedented every month, if not every week. And this is uh, among them. In fact, you were going to ask about what are going to be the biggest stories of 2024 and the Trump trials in the legal system is going to be my answer for that. (laughs) I had a slightly different take on on the story that I sort of focused on the, the most, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which was the, the House Republicans continually stepping on rakes uh, all over, all over D.C. Uh, you know, of course, this Congress started with with the House Republicans not being able to, quote unquote, get their house in order, 15 rounds of votes to get McCarthy in there. Uh, He lasts nine months and they decide to do it all over again. And I don't see it getting much better next year. One of the things I'm looking at going into next year is, are they going to try to expand their tent at all? They're speaking to this very small tent in, in terms of everything they're doing, everything they're messaging and going into an election year, a big election year, are they going to try to uh, expand their appeal at all to uh, to to, to middle of the road voters, or continue to just speak to their base? And they're going to have to do it with an even smaller majority. McCarthy's out, a couple other members. Well, Santos is out. Uh, Bill Johnson from Ohio is going to be out, so they're going to have even fewer votes to to mm-hmm. play with than they had this year. I I, I always thought. McCarthy's original sin wasn't the deal he made with the Freedom Caucus. McCarthy's original sin was was winning by a lot fewer or winning a lot fewer seats than he thought he was going to win by. Uh going back to last summer, I was hearing Republicans saying that they were going to win 30, 40, 50 right. seats. Mm-hmm. And they wound up winning what nine, and that was just the the die was cast at that point that this was going to be a mess in the House Republican conference. So
2: Jason, certainly two huge stories dominating 2023, the whole Trump legal saga and this disarray in the House of Representatives, which to a certain extent still continues, right? Uh, It's still shaky
1: there. Uh, How do you see it, Jason? Those two stories and anything else? Uh, Yes. And I'll I'll even go one one more up on Ginger and, and Jeff and say that the Trump trials will continue to be the top story of 2025. Regardless, (laughs) Regardless, <laughs> regardless of who the occupant of the White House is, whether it's Trump or Biden or somebody else, one thing that we, you know, again, are sort of reminded of is that it does not matter how many decisions there are. He will appeal things. He will he will continue to draw it out. He is an he's just very good at this. He's been doing this for decades, and uh, and we you know we got a taste of this with the uh, January sixth appeal case you know uh, jack he wanted to take it from the district court the, you know some of the the presidential immunity stuff from the district court to the appeals court and then jack smith the special prosecutor said let's just go to the supreme court <laughs> and and trev was like well no I, we, you know we should, we shouldn't rush this and that's the plan uh so that will that really did you know that that dominated a lot of our thinking and also i mean we we don't have you know, the same kind of mission as, 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 a, you know, as a network like NBC. So we, we can't be in Atlanta and, and, and Miami uh, and, and so forth. So we've tried to focus a little bit more on, you know, and, and here, you know, with the, particularly with the January six cases, and it's just, it, even just one case is, is kind of overwhelming. And then, you know, as, as Jeff said, I mean, the, the, the speaker leadership uh, struggles and, and just continual problems that the republican conference had even even when they had that nine months of of of, uh, mccarthy and leadership it was just one problem after another they you know several times they would as soon as McCarthy struck his deal with the president on a, you know, to avert a uh, breach of the debt limit. They started voting down rules uh, on the floor, which means that they couldn't even agree to the rules that they would adhere to for 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 how for debate on the floor. It was just a mess. And it just kept on. I mean, we, we lost almost two months, you know, of of this year just in trying to elect speakers you know the, the with mccarthy's first round and then in the round in october that re- resulted in mike johnson's you know it, like a little over 5 weeks you know uh, 6 weeks you know, of just electing speakers uh and it it just it it's frustrating and because you don't know where things are going and it's not like they don't have a lot to do even as they minimize their agenda to doing very basic stuff so that, that was hard. And then the thing that we, you know, that, that we saw that we wanted to f- really drill down on is the this sort of ever-present threat of political violence. Uh, I mean, it, it is not just Donald Trump, you know, who who talks in violent terms and with violent rhetoric, and it's showing up. You know, the Capitol police are kind of overwhelmed uh in in their bid to protect not just people like the speaker and the speaker in the and the Senate President pro tem who are in the presidential line of succession, but multiple threats to multiple members all the time. And we're seeing just a real, I think, breakdown in the ability uh, to to make sure that people are safe uh, in the Capitol. And that, I mean, as an editor, you know, we were looking through a lot of sensitive documents that Capitol Police did not want out in the open about their failures, the breakdowns in, say, protecting the Speaker's residence in San Francisco, which resulted in an assault on Paul Pelosi in 2022, her husband. So that that occupied a lot of our time because we know that that, I mean, when you're up there on on the Hill all the time, you know, there's any any given day, there's, you know, tens of thousands of people walking through there and you you feel how vulnerable it is. So we
2: agree, uh, certainly, on Trump dominating on many fronts in uh, 2023, the disarray in the House of Representatives, and Jason adding political violence. What else? Nobody has mentioned, uh, Ginger, the exciting Republican primary for president in 2024.
3: I (laughs) thought you were going to say the White House bill, because (laughs) I, I...
2: well, what else? What that's, else would you like to add?
3: That's part of my portfolio, right? I I edit the White House coverage, and man, it's just not exciting. It just—it hasn't been well, a good year for Biden either. But you're right, the primary. But like, that's because the primary was over when it started. It was—it has <laughs> never been a primary. And I think you know, if I put my media criticism hat on for you, Bill, I'll say that we have tried, as a whole, this industry to make it into a race, and it just isn't. Right. And look, we have an obligation to cover all of it and we should be, but like, it is not a race and (laughs) it hasn't been a race. And I think if it was anyone other than Donald Trump, right, if it was if it was five governors got into a a, and some senators got into a primary race and one of them had Trump's numbers, we would have declared it over a long time ago. And we would be treating it like it was basically a perfunctory process to vote um, come January, but it, it has. And in fact, I was I was editing a piece yesterday with laying out all the candidates issues and we had to remove some because we had started it this piece a while ago and we keep updating it on our website. Um, and I was like, man, I forgot about Mike Pence. I forgot <laughs> that he ran for president. How quickly did I forget about this? You just and reminded think- <laughs> me. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. I want to go back to something Jeff said because I think this is Indiana, all tied Indiana, Right, together. He's
1: from Indiana? <laughs> from Indiana?
3: <clears throat> I don't think that the original sin, as Jeff put it, was Kevin McCarthy not winning as many seats as he needed to have a robust majority. I think the original sin was a decade ago when the Republican Party decided that their tent was going to include people who wanted to burn it all down. Mm. that that's the people they needed to continue to hold majorities and win elections. And they started electing people to Congress. And the the key here to me on um, both of these fronts is that not only did they start funding and empowering and, and giving a platform to people who wanted to burn it all down, but those people then went out and convinced more voters that everything needed to be burned down. And they have amassed... A critical mass in the Republican Party that want everything burned down. The Democrats will occasionally have people who want to burn things down. But remember one of the last big let's burn it all down? AOC. And when was the last time anyone saw her with a match in Congress? Never. <laughs> she got up there and she she changed. She shifted. She adapted to the place. She figured out what it took to be effective. These folks on the right have not done that. They have stuck with this, like, let's burn it all down. And I think one of the key things we talk about Donald Trump trials, we talk about Donald Trump's, you know, could he get elected and pardon himself? Could he get elected and gut the Constitution? He talks about being a dictator on one day. I think the thing is, is that a lot of times people who think the idea of a dictator or the idea of getting rid of constitutional provisions is like really bad. Like see him say that and apply a value to it. But we forget that there's all these people out there that think those are good things, right? Mm -hmm. Those are like things, reasons to vote for Donald Trump. And a lot of those people are the burn it down crowd. And I think they're all sort of intertwined together and they're all part of one big thing that has lasted more than 10 years and just fundamentally Mm -hmm. changed the Republican party. And I think we see that, in this primary fight where these traditional candidates who aren't really who either don't actually want to burn it all down or no one believes them when they say it can't get any traction for that reason uh,
2: uh, and Jeff I know you want to jump in it I think Kevin McCarthy felt he could control these people once he helped them get into congress
4: not a chance yeah, how'd that work I, out? Right? I, I think there is a there is a thread that that ties together both my my comment and and Ginger's, which is that there are indeed a lot of folks in this Republican conference who would much prefer to be in the minority. Temperamentally, hmm. they are much more comfortable sitting on the sidelines, just throwing bombs, rather than actually uh, affirmatively legislating and leading and, uh, and legislating for the country. Uh, that's been very, very clear, uh, over the last, what, 11 months.
2: Yeah. And they're, they're better at one thing than they are the other, right? Certainly.
4: And, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, the, the joke is that they're all essentially on a, a long-term, uh, a trial for a, for a Fox news gig. And, and there, <laughs> there, there may be something there may be something to that, or or, or Newsmax, or, or or what have you. You know, we've seen people like Jason Chaffetz and and Trey Gowdy make that leap, Mike Huckabee, but they are comparatively mainstream to some of the folks we see now in the House, uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the Lauren Boberts of the world. I don't know what network they, they would they would have a home on.
2: Yeah, Jason, I hear you giggling in the background there. Uh, certainly about the Republican primary. I mean, I don't know when you look at that last lineup in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You know, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Boy, power powerhouse, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, and and you know, it it really does speak to to you know to to Ginger and and just point that the 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 folks who are doing, who are driving the primary vote and enthusiasm are really not interested in anything resembling what we, you know, we knew the Republican party to be say in like 2009 or 2008, uh, because, you know, you've got two former governors, uh, you've got a current governor, you've got an entrepreneur and, you know, it is just not good enough. It's not good enough for them to mimic, you know, the, the way Trump, you know, sort of, talks uh, or, about the constitution or on a, on a style, or a, I hate to say the word policy, cause it's not really policies, uh, but it, it doesn't work. Um, and, you know, I mean, Ron DeSantis was an FBI agent and went to an Ivy league school. <laughs> You know, Nikki Haley was the UN ambassador and the governor of South Carolina. You know, Chris Christie was a former U.S. attorney and a governor. I mean, these are all like and very main, that, mainstream things, right? That, and that guy you know, from that guy from Indiana was a vice president, too. <laughs> right, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it's just you know the the it, it is you know when I, I I feel like the tent you know getting back to the the sort of the size of the tent you know at a certain point people were like whether it was during the great recession they're like you know the tax cuts don't mean anything to me you know like the the deregulation of of you know different industries doesn't mean anything to me i'm pissed off and and i want to i want to break something and i and it doesn't there is no rhyme or reason to it i'm just angry and and the fact that that was cultivated showed that the those other ideas perhaps just had a dwindling appeal for their voters
4: it was like Woodstock '99. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we're
2: talking the big stories, the major stories, looking back at 2023, we're talking with three top editors here in Washington: Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, and Ginger Gibson from NBC News. I'll take a quick break when we come back. Uh, let's continue our conversation. I'm stunned that nobody so far has mentioned. Maybe the biggest story of 2023, and that was the Chinese spy balloon. Come on. Come on, guys. Let's go. All right. We'll be right back after a quick break. And today's special edition and special roundtable here during the holidays brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, as they call themselves. Uh, We want to salute the great members of the Laborers Union uh, and salute them particularly for their great work building America uh, in the construction industry, really taking advantage of the new infrastructure bill, uh, putting more, uh, more jobs in construction than ever before for the laborers. Also, their efforts in the energy field and in the healthcare field. And a particular salute to the longtime president of the Laborers, Terry O'Sullivan, who left office this year and uh, welcome his successor, the new president of the Laborers, Brent Booker. So a big thank you to the Laborers for their great work for all of us as Americans, and particularly for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. We're back on the uh, Bill Press pod this December 22nd, special holiday edition of our Reporters Roundtable. Looking back at 2023 and ahead at 2024, uh, we talked about Donald Trump. We've talked about the House. We've talked about political violence. We've talked about the GOP primary. Jason, there are a couple of other stories out there maybe just worth quick mention before we look at ahead. There were some special elections in 2023. Uh, many of them uh, f- centered on the issue of access to abortion. I'm thinking Ohio. I'm thinking Kentucky. I'm thinking Virginia. That, that was a big uh, story in 2023. Collectively,
1: Agree? absolutely, yeah, ab- absolutely. And and again, not to get too far ahead, but this will this will also be a part of you know the 2024 narrative. I mean, Democrats. You know, ran on on abortion. You know, they made sure that they got uh, a ballot measure uh, on on the Ohio uh, ballot for for this this election cycle. This off-year election cycle, it won overwhelmingly. There was no question about it. Uh, as as uh, as Ginger was saying about Trump, you know, like you know, when when somebody has a twenty-point lead, when somebody wins by twenty points, uh, when a ballot measure wins by twenty points, it's it's about as good a result if you're a proponent of it as you as you can. There's no question, even in a place that's, you know, a, a right of center state in general, uh at like Ohio. Uh and in Kentucky, you know, the the, the you know the, the Democrats, you know, are are have not really made a lot of headway in in Kentucky except at the governor's race. I mean, granted, like if you're named Bashir, I guess you have an advantage there, whether it's the father or the son. Uh, but uh but abortion was a center point of of that gubernatorial race. And, and you know, the, because the Supreme Court now has said that they will decide, uh, they will hear a case on, on Mifepristone, on the availability of Mifepristone, the, abor- the abortion medicine that you can get uh, across state lines in the mail. It will be a part of the narrative next year, too. So if you're a Democrat, that's probably good news.
2: Yeah, Ginger, that, that, that certainly this is something that you, know, I know at NBC News, you covered as well, all of these primaries. And we tend to forget in the off year, right, some of these elections may not seem important, but these were particularly important, weren't they? Yeah,
3: these were. And to me, one of the other big stories of this year that we're going to see going ahead that was intertwined in all of this is we talk about the economy a lot. And we talk about it as a, and the terms and the tone that we use as a net negative for Biden that people are unhappy, that the price of things have went up, that the wages did not keep pace, even though now we see evidence of that, that people feel like they're stretched too thin. And what we know from history is that when people feel bad about the economy, they're telling pollsters, they feel bad about the economy, they're telling pollsters, they feel bad about the state of the country, they tend to vote out incumbents, right?
2: Uh-huh. Yep. They
3: want something new and different. And across these elections, these off-year, you mentioned Kentucky, elections that we had last, this in this last year, no incumbents lost. Incumbents were reelected in every race where there was an incumbent on the ballot. And I think that that really sort of is something we should be paying attention to because as voters are telling us they don't like the economy, they're unhappy, they don't like the direction of things, they're not changing their leadership. And I know a lot of folks were looking at those abortion numbers on Election Day and thinking that was very good for Democrats. But if you were Joe Biden and you were watching those November elections, I think the fact that every incumbent survived is like a big thing. Um, And I think part of it is that we are looking we tend to look at the worst numbers. Right. I was looking the other day, the unemployment rate when Barack Obama was reelected in 2012, like in November, was 7.7 percent. And we all were like, that number is outrageous. But like the number now is 3.7 percent, it might even come down since yeah. last month, it was 3.7 percent in November, so four points lower. But we talk about the economy in way worse terms, uh, for Joe Biden than we did for Barack Obama. Um, and I think that that's really a thread that we saw a lot of and, and we're going to keep seeing over the next year,
2: yeah. Jeff, <laughs> love your comments on that. I mean, if people are so upset when gas prices are $4 plus, right? Why aren't they
4: happy today when it's like $3 ago? I'm I'm so glad this came up because this is another thing we've been following a a lot. The Dow just hit a record, 37,000. Yeah, right. The unemployment rate almost cannot get lower. And yet, one of the things we've tracked is the University of Michigan index of consumer sentiment. It's the blue ribbon Measure. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this since the '60s. For the life of this measure, the actual measure of consumer sentiment has tracked with 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 where it should be, basically, based on the economic indicators, mm-hmm. until a year or two ago. And now, it's about the actual number is about twenty points lower than where the economic indicators tell us ah. that consumer sentiment should be. Wow. It why? should be how? around 100, which is about its, its median over the life of things. And it's around 75 or 80 right now. Why is the big question? And 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 why people have this, this sort of, uh, this huge disconnect over the actual numbers versus how they feel. Yeah, maybe they're still sore about the price of eggs being two bucks more than they were uh, two years ago. I'm not sure that explains everything. One take, uh, it's one of the pieces I'm most proud of, came from uh, our polling and data columnist, Natalie Jackson. And her theory was this whole disconnect between people's attitudes and the economic reality goes all the way back to the COVID-19 pandemic that it's there's still this pandemic hangover. Uh, the pandemic proved how precarious our lives and situations can be, even for people who thought they had stable work, stable family, stable schooling, mm-hmm. and that government was kind of powerless to, to, to address it. She pointed to data from the American Psychological Association. They run this Stress in America survey every year. And Americans report substantially higher stress rates right now than they did in 2019 before the pandemic. So I don't think we've totally emerged from this pandemic mm. mentality. It's maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but I've I, I've yet to hear a, a better theory to uh to explain this disconnect.
2: Which raises a big question about what Joe Biden can possibly do about that. Exactly. Right, given those numbers. Yeah. So before we move on to uh, looking ahead to 2024, Jason, how soon are we going to forget
1: about George Santos? Santos is probably not going to go away soon because he's just so fun as a punchline. I mean, and, and again, I'm not, I don't mean to belittle, you know, the fact that people have been defrauded by this guy. Uh, not, not, he's not just a liar, but he defrauded them, allegedly, uh, which looks kind of serious, including some of his own colleagues. <laughs> taking, you know, credit card, you know, swipes from them without their knowledge after they donated once and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, he, he made it into Saturday Night Live, you know, and, you know, that we, you know, we have a, a YouTube channel, of course, with Roll Call and we put videos on there. and We do this thing called Hits and Misses, which is like the sort of a compilation of different weird stuff that happens on the Hill. The Santos related one when he was expelled was got three times as much mm. viewing <laughs> as, as anything else we've ever done. Um, And granted, we have a small audience, you know, it's, it's primarily people in Washington and who care about politics and so forth. But I think that Santos is, is also not going away. You know, he, he does these, you know, he's still very active on social media. He's recording cameos, you know, for 200 bucks a pop. So I actually don't think he's going away anytime soon because he's not, it it actually doesn't profit him to go away soon. He's not going to slink off uh, and cut a plea and, and, you know, start working at, uh, McDonald's. Uh, I mean, he he's well, going to he find be a way. Maybe literally going
4: away, Jason. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, uh, but but I think that you know this is part of his thing is that he you know you know we saw like other other people who were convicted of crimes or or, or struck pleas. You know, remember Bob Ney? You know, uh, who was the House Administration Committee Chairman in the two thousands, mm-hmm. Republican from Ohio. He went to a minimum security prison and then wrote a you know, a a book about, you know, being in, in the house. And there was this very sad book party for him at the monocle. You know I mean? Like, I don't think that's going to be Santos. I think that he's uh, the, the nature, the very nature of social media loves people like Santos. Uh, So I think that he'll, he'll be a a, one of those sort of characters that lingers in the popular consciousness, even if people don't remember exactly why. Kind of like Cato Catelyn from the OJ Simpson scandal.
2: (laughs) I must admit, I was tempted to a, buy a cameo from Santos as Carol for a Christmas present,
3: <laughs> you
1: can have him plug
2: the
3: podcast. <laughs> I, I, I have some other thoughts of things Carol might enjoy more than. Um, Santos. We can talk about that offline. Uh,
2: I resisted <laughs> the temptation. You'll be you'll be pleased to know. All right. So look ahead, twenty twenty four. Obviously, a presidential election. Jeff, your predictions about. How you think you're going to be spending most of your time as editor? And we'll go around the table here. Uh, Jeff, start us off in 2024.
4: Sure. This this economic uh, issue that that we just talked yep. about is, mm-hmm. is one, and then the other one that we had already talked about is the the Trump trials, yeah, slash impeachment, slash the the general blurring of the legal and judicial with the political. I think this is going to be the story of, of 2024. Uh, on the one hand, I don't think any of this really helps anybody. On the other hand, I have, like a lot of D.C. journalists, gotten uh, plenty cynical over the years. But I am not yet sold on the fact that that felony convictions in federal court are not going to hurt Trump's chances, especially with mm-hmm. swing voters, independent voters. I am not yet so cynical that I, that I think that that's not going to matter. Right. And that's probably why he's trying to delay these cases so much because he knows that that Mm -hmm. is potentially going to hurt him. Yeah. I I might even. I might
2: add Jeff, if I can, how quaint, how quaint, to think that being a convicted felon would have any impact at all on an election. You know, it's, right. it's, yeah, I'm, I'm,
4: <laughs> And I could maybe even expand the aperture even more and step back and ask if one of the things I'm really following from 10,000 feet is, is the presidential matchup we expect right now actually going to be the presidential matchup? Is it 100% certain? I'm not sure that it is. Trump has a, a lot of pitfalls ahead of him. I did a, a column last week on on the potential path for for Nikki Haley. I don't think it's a likely path, but I sketched out this this path where it, it it is possible that she gets enough delegates where she at least arrives at the convention at which point Trump is a convicted felon and the party says, "Okay, is this really such a good idea to 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 nominate the convicted felon?" On the other hand, my colleague Charlie Cook just wrote last week, is Biden going to still potentially reconsider this thing when he sees the cavalcade of numbers coming in that that look as bad as they do? The only reason he's in this is because he thinks he's the only guy who can beat Trump yet again. And if that seems not to be the case, Mm -hmm. does he Mm -hmm. reconsider that? And at what point is it too late to reconsider that?
2: Uh, there we go into 2024. Lots of questions, uh, Jason. How do you see it uh, in your crystal ball for 2024? Not so
1: far away. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like Jeff. I'm fascinated with you know what what are the points of no return uh, for for Trump and Biden? You know, in in the presidential race. Yeah, uh, and and also, I I mean, so the the retirement numbers for Congress also they're not so out of proportion from what we typically see. Except that you know they're they're a little high uh you know we're getting past the point of the the um the average number of retirements, and we still have the california you know and 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 you know sort of numbers come in, but the thing that occurs to me is that it's not just the raw numbers, it's the institutional knowledge of the of the place uh i mean there there are a lot of really Experienced uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who are saying, "I'm I'm done," and it's not all out of disgust. I mean, you know, when you're in your 70s or 80s uh, and you've been in Congress for 30 or 40 years, uh, you know, uh, you know, several decades, like Anna Eschew in California or Earl Blumenauer in Oregon, you know, you can it, it's time. It's it's admirable to for people to actually retire if they want to you know have a little bit of uh, time to themselves that doesn't involve politics. And who replaces them? Who replaces the you know people in the the Democratic and Republican parties? Uh, the, these institutionalists, people who have been a part of the place for a while and know how to write legislation and to work with colleagues in real time that to me is going to be very fascinating in these primaries because they're really just around the corner. I mean yeah, the first yeah. big primaries, you know, are are for for congressional candidates start in March. And who are who are going to be the people who replace the these sort of institutionalists on both sides. I think it's it's fascinating because it does begin to define the character of of the institution. And if you get more people like Matt Gates uh <laughs> as opposed to Earl Blumenauer that that definitely changes the tenor of the place. Indeed, indeed. And Ginger, what are you gearing up for there at NBC
2: News looking ahead?
3: Yeah, I think the story of 2024 is just going to be these Trump trials. And with Jeff, I think these are going to consume so much. And I, I think from my vantage point, I tell, you know, I'm the editor in charge of Washington coverage, and I'm also the editor in charge of the Trump trial coverage. But I don't... I have the re-elect, but I don't have the Republican side, right? And I'm not the the election editor. But what I tell my reporters in D.C. all the time is that um, we essentially have two incumbent presidents running against each other. And we have to cover them like that. We have to go back and look at their terms, look at what they did in office. And part of looking at what Trump did in office uh, is all of these trials. And I know Jason mentioned the D.C. trial, but I think the D.C. trial... It's the main event. It's probably the one we're going to see first, um, and it's got the most implications. And I sound like a broken record because I say this to reporters all the time. What I say is, you know, Donald Trump, when he lost to re-election in 2020, reached for every lever of power that he could find to try to overturn that election. We know that. We documented it. We watched it happen in real time. And a return to power after having done that, would sort of fundamentally change the presidency, the executive, the way that we view those levers of power and how they should be used. It would be, surely to Donald Trump in his mind, uh, a bit of a stamp of approval of what he did at that time from a portion of the American public. And like I've said, some of them think that's good. Some of them think it's a good thing Mm -hmm. that he did that. Some of them want to do more of it. And we just need to make sure and everything we write, and this is sort of my guiding principle, that everyone understands the stakes. Like They get it. They know what's at stake here. And that's it. And so I think these trials are going to be helping us explain by bringing to light in a courtroom what happened and what's at stake if he's reelected and returned to power because these are the things he did and these are the things of that nature that he would do in the future so that's to me like the big story of the year and and what I know is going to just consume all of my time
2: (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and let me just add that we see more and more people in the media I think Ginger who are making that point from the right and the left you know Robert Kagan conservative columnist in the Washington Post Stuart Stevens uh, and Liz Cheney right you know Republicans voices saying that the choice is really going to be a dramatic choice between democracy and and autocracy And that's a wrap for today's editorial roundtable. Looking back at 2023 and, of course, looking ahead to 2024. A big thanks to our panel, Ginger Gibson from NBC News, Jason Dick, CQ Roll Call, and Jeff Dufour, National Journal. Great working with you guys all year long. And thanks for uh, uh, wrapping the year up for us. Thanks also to producer Jay Feldman. And a big thanks to all of you for joining us again today. Now, we'll be back on Tuesday, the day after Christmas, with a special edition of the Bill Press Pod. Yep, a fresh look at Jimmy Carter, perhaps the most underappreciated president of all time. With journalist Jonathan Alter, we'll talk about how effective Jimmy Carter actually was as president and as former president, and whether maybe it's time for history to give him a lot more credit. That's Tuesday, coming up December 26th, We'll see you then. Meanwhile, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays from all of us here at the Bill Press Pod.